Christians have much to say about what they call good news. But there is no good news for Christians to share without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the conquest of death. It is the confirmation of his claims, of his identity. His resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection from the dead at the end of all things. His resurrection is the down payment, we can call it. The guarantee, the installment, the first fruits of the harvest. His resurrection is the dawn of new creation, which the prophets of old and in ancient words and centuries had longed for. It is the cosmic announcement of victory to the nations and to the principalities. It is the means by which Jesus possesses now an everlasting reign, king of kings. His resurrection is the putting on of immortality. The putting on of imperishability. He has died and risen never to die again. In Jesus' resurrection, we see the corruption and curse of death vanquished in him. And so we have hope now in him that for us, the curse of death and corruption will be vanquished as well. The message of Christians is that Jesus has defeated death from the inside. He has gone into death and he has broken and conquered its power. In fact, the reason that the New Testament exists is because Jesus rose from the dead. The writing of the four Gospels, the book of Acts, 21 letters, the book of Revelation, they are all the result of the empty tomb. A risen Jesus proclaimed, starting in Jerusalem, into Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The New Testament exists because Jesus, flow, or Jesus rose from the dead. These 27 books flow from an empty tomb. We should go further back. The reason the 39 Old Testament books exist is because Jesus was going to die on the cross and rise from the dead. We are trying to proclaim good news that Jesus is the fulcrum on which all history and all proclamations and prophecies have turned. He is the dawning of hope from the dead. The Old Testament is forward-looking to his victory, and the New Testament is grounded in it. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four books are all on the same rail system heading to the same destination. They're taking you to where witnesses went to a tomb and a stone was rolled back and the news of his resurrection was proclaimed. When we read Luke's account today, we see the discovery of the empty tomb in the first three verses. And I invite you to study closely with me this morning as we pay attention to the phrasing and to the sentences that God has preserved by his spirit for us that we would know this news and that we would believe it. And then we would love the Christ who is proclaimed. And that we would follow him. The Bible writers write with an agenda for us. They are reporting the historical events as they had happened. And urging a response from those who hear. They are aiming to, with this news, pierce the hearts of the listeners to the depths of who we are, that we might have eyes and hearts beholding the glorious news and believe. This empty tomb is described in verses 1 to 3. 
but on the first day of the week. They're counting days because on the sixth day, Jesus had died. On the seventh day, he was in the tomb. So day one and day two, the days of his death and his burial still on the Saturday, that seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day. The first day of the week is that third day from the cross. On the first day of the week, this is when we gather to worship here at Cosmos Dale Baptist Church. And in line with the pattern of the saints throughout the history of the ages, the first day of the week takes on a prominence because of what's reported. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Who is they? It's just giving us a pronoun there. There's, there's not names recorded in verse 1. The story from chapter 23 is continuing. We're told in chapter 23, 54, that it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And in verse 55, women had come with him from Galilee and they followed and saw the tomb where his body was laid. So in chapter 24, 1, they went to the tomb. It's the same women who saw where Joseph of Arimathea had buried Jesus on that Friday. In chapter 24, we even get their names later on, don't we? In verse 10, we're told that they include Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women with him told these things to the apostles. They are the they. So they go to the tomb, these witnesses who go at early dawn. But what are they doing? They're taking something with them in verse 1, spices they had prepared. And I want us to con consider what they're, what they're expecting and what they're not expecting. The reason they're bringing spices is because earlier, at the end of chapter 23, the body of Jesus had been wrapped, laid in a tomb. And in verse 56, the women prepared spices and ointments, going to rest on the Sabbath and go to the body of Jesus at the end of the Sabbath. You know what they're doing on the first day of the week then? They're going to a tomb where they expect to find a body wrapped. That's why they're bringing spices. They don't get up that morning saying, look at your calendar. Do you know what day this is? We're going to go and that stone's going to be gone from the entrance. That body is going to be missing. Those linen wraps. Are... No, they're taking spices to put on the dead body where there was no time to do that kind of work on the Sabbath day. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 16, 3, they even ask themselves on the way, who will roll away the stone for us? You should put yourselves in the minds of these female witnesses as they're traveling to the tomb and what they're not expecting. They've got spices to put on a body, trying to think about how they're going to get that stone out of the way. In verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Verse 2 tells us what they did not anticipate. And it's not because people said, let's go ahead and roll this out of the way. These guards, that is, we're going to roll it because we know some people are coming on the first day of the week. The tomb had been uh, sealed. Guards had been placed. A royal um, seal had been placed on the stone itself. This stone was to be put there and left there. So in verse 2, they found the stone, stone rolled away from the tomb. And we know from Matthew's gospel, an angel of heaven rolled it away. It's amazing to think about. There's somewhere in Jerusalem, there's sat for 2,000 years a large stone with angel fingerprints on it. Now I'm just, you know, I know angels don't have fingerprints. It's just to say that you have this stone that has been moved by an act of heaven. That's why they find it rolled away. 
And in verse 3, they went in. I mean, wouldn't you? There's no Roman guards there. The stone's been rolled, and that's not how you last saw it. Friday evening, it looked one way. Now the first day of the week, they come, and they immediately go inside. They go inside, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So here they are holding these spices. But for what? (laughs) For what? There's no body there. They can't find the body. Who has taken it? That's their burning question, right? What has happened to the body of Jesus? In verses 4 through 7, they experience an encounter. An encounter that will change the way they are thinking about the scene. An encounter that will lead them to proclaim good news of great joy. Verses 4 to 7 is an angelic encounter. It unfolds this way. While they were perplexed about this, Luke is not concealing from you the bewilderment of the women. They can't figure out what to make of this scene. They're perplexed by it. They don't look at each other and say, well, you know, obviously, obviously here, a bodily resurrection. They know that in the ancient world, when a body dies, is wrapped and placed in a tomb, people aren't expecting that body to be raised. So they are perplexed. While they're perplexed about this, Luke says, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They appeared as men, two men in dazzling apparel. And we see later on, this is an angelic appearance. The women will say to the disciples, and it will be part of the discussion later in Luke 24, that an angelic encounter has taken place and an angel has already rolled the stone. That's what they find rolled away. These men are in dazzling apparel, which must have seemed quite intimidating because they are there at the very break of dawn. There's not much light. They're trying to figure out where this body is. This tomb has the stone rolled away. And all of a sudden, in dazzling apparel, it must have felt like something they need to shield their eyes with. It reminds us of earlier in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus was transfigured before several disciples on a mountain. This angelic heavenly encounter is confirmed by the appearance and the dazzling light emanating from these individuals. Later on in Luke 24, 23, they're described as angels. They had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, verse 23 tells us. Verse 5 gives us an understandable response. Here they are. They've got spices in their hands. They're prepared to see a body. There's no body. The stone has been rolled away. Who's done that? They couldn't figure out who was going to do it on their way. And now these Dazzlingly appareled men are there, and these in verse 5 become frightened and bow their faces to the ground. Their instinct is not to say, Well, you know, sort of fold their arms and say, I wonder what's going to happen next. This is curious. They are terrified. No one's counting on an experience like this. Even their familiarity with the Old Testament would know, would lead them to conclude that encounters with heavenly or angelic beings is not some often frequent experience for the people of the ages. And here they are. Here they are women in an early dawn of the day encountering angelic beings in in front of an empty tomb. And they bow their faces to the ground and here's what those appeared to them say. 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's a fascinating question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? One thing we need to notice from this question is they didn't think they were seeking the living. They came to the tomb because that's where you find the dead. So the angel's question can even function as a kind of prodding and maybe even gentle rebuke of what they expected to find that they don't find. And with the insertion of the word living, he's helping them to see what they ought to be seeking. And if they knew what they really ought to be seeking, they wouldn't be in the graveyard. Why do you seek the living? Now, they might say on their way, well, we're seeking Jesus. If somebody were to ask them, where are you going at such an early hour of the day and you're holding spices, what's the rush? And they might say, well, we're seeking the body of Jesus. The angel knows they've come for Jesus, but the angel calls Jesus the living that's not how they last saw him. They last saw a body being wrapped, anointed and placed in a tomb and sealed with a stone. And these ask the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? This challenges their assumption. It reorients their expectation. It, it, it must have been such a bracing question as well for them to think, well, wait a second, if we've come to this place and he's using the word living, what is it that we're missing besides the body? In verse 6, the angel says, he is not here, but has risen. Well, there's the explanation for the curiosity and bewilderment of the women. What's happened to that body? It has risen. The body has been made alive. And then the angel not only explains the absence of the body with a declaration of resurrection. The angel calls them to remember. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. These women have followed Jesus for some time. They are right now in the southern part of the promised land where Jerusalem is. Galilee is in the northern part of the promised land, the land of Israel. And while they were in the northern part of the land, along with other disciples, Jesus taught. He asked questions to them to provoke thinking and understanding. He appealed to scriptures and instructed them with his profound wisdom on what he had come to do and the mission he had come to fulfill. And here's what he wants them to remember. He says in verse 6, Remember how he, Jesus, told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered. The women had heard something in the ministry of Jesus. He had told them back then about what would be happening right now, and they have come to the graveyards looking for the dead. And the angel is saying, you're not remembering, are you? You're not listening and thinking about what he had said. Remember when he was in Galilee in verse 7, he, the son of man, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. That must that carries a lot of weight. The gospels put a lot on the word must. It's an idea of not some kind of optional or it was up in the air, even until the very last moment, what would really transpire? The word must 
And the words of Jesus are words about a divine plan unfolding in the middle of human history. And here the angel is saying, in other words, don't you remember that this is the plan? The plan is that the Son of Man be delivered into the hands of sinful men. We only need to read Luke 22 and Luke 23 in the recent account of the narrative to see what being turned over to the sinful men involved. The different Jewish proceedings in the stages of trial. The Roman proceedings in the stages of trial. Jesus was delivered up by Judas to an arresting crowd and then the arresting crowd to the Jewish leaders condemned by their Jewish ruling body called the Sanhedrin turned over to Pilate who sent him to Herod Antipas back to Pontius Pilate who gave into the crowd after saying, I don't find this man guilty of anything and neither does Herod. He's not deserving of death. And yet he listened to the mob crowd calling for Christ's crucifixion. Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified. We see in Luke 23, Jesus on the cross, speaking on the cross, praying on the cross, and others on his right and left, dying as criminals. Jesus counted among the transgressors, dying as a substitute in the place of Barabbas. And in the place of Barabbas, Jesus also dies in place of sinners. We are Barabbas. We are the ones looking toward a Christ who had nothing of his heart and life worthy of crucifixion, but had loved the law of God in his heart and mind was without sin. And therefore, as one truly divine and truly human dies in the place of sinners to atone for sins. He was delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified. But the women in Galilee and the disciples earlier on as well had heard that on the third day he must rise. That is the morning, the dawn of the morning that they are present at that tomb. It was the day of resurrection. That was when he would rise from the dead. And even that third day promise was something that had to be processed by those disciples in the hours and days that followed Luke 24. They believed as Jewish readers of the Old Testament, there would be a resurrection of the dead. It would be at the end of all history. It would be when God vindicates his people and judges the wicked. There would be an end time resurrection, but they are proclaiming here. This angel is saying to them that Christ is the first fruits, the one in the middle of history who has been raised bodily from the dead, just as he said he would. The angel seems to be drawing upon teachings Christ explicitly made in Luke 9. In Luke 9, 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and on the third day raised. In Luke 9, 44, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men. In chapter 18, Jesus said he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed, and then on the third day, rise. Ah, yes, the angel is right. The women and others in the ministry of Jesus heard about that promise. Look at the response of them in verses 8 through 11. They remembered his words. It all came flooding back. And maybe this happens to you from time to time when memories from years and years ago are just provoked by some sort of place or conversation, something that you notice or see, some smell in the air, and it just takes your mind and transports you and you say, that's right. And it's not because it wasn't always in your mind. You're not making up that memory. 
It has been called forth. And here, the angel's words in describing those teachings, it comes rushing into the minds of the women. It floods their understanding. They remembered his words. Yes, he said he would be delivered over, that he would be killed, and that on the third day, he would rise. We saw earlier in Luke chapter 22, Jesus had promised Peter, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter had said, no, I won't. Jesus, I'm with you to prison and to death. Whatever comes, I'm not turning from you. But then during the moments of the questions put to Peter, are you one of the disciples? Are you the man? Didn't we see you with them? Peter's denial start to unfold. He had not remembered all that the Lord said. But then in Luke 22, the rooster crows and it says Peter and Jesus saw one another and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. He remembered the saying of the Lord. It all came flooding back. Jesus here had taught his women and the disciples about what would happen. And in front of an empty tomb, because of an angelic provoking to remembrance, these women have it flooding their minds and they are not weeping bitterly like Peter. Can you imagine the state of their lifted hearts and minds realizing the stone has been rolled away, the body is not there, and the explanation is what Jesus said was going to happen, a resurrection from the dead, a victory, a triumph. Well, if you're them, here's what you do. In verse 9, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And John chapter 20 says they ran to do it. I don't imagine when they gathered the spices that morning, they're running to the tomb. But they're running from it. They are moving as fast as they can. They have urgent news. It's not like, well, you know, sometime after breakfast, we should probably let some people know what's happened. You know, let's, let's just go to the market and we'll go about our day. The disciples are probably sleeping in. We don't want to wake anybody. They run. Because this is the kind of news you don't walk with. It's the kind of news that doesn't get interrupted with anything else. You run with this news. And they go straight to the 11. There are 11 there are 11 because there are no longer 12. Judas has betrayed Christ. Judas has turned from the news of Christ, forsaken his identity with the disciples. There are 11. And we're told in verse 9, they told these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Well, that's a fascinating phrase. Who's all there? We know at least the 11 are there. We know a group of women who are named in verse 10 that are among those witnesses. But then there's this all the rest. We know at least, later on in chapter 24, the two walking to Emmaus are among them. We're told in chapter 24, these later on walking to Emmaus say... In verse 22, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. So there are the 11. There are more than the 11, including the witnesses, these women who have come to the disciples. They remember and return to the, uh, to the disciples. They have 
remembrance to proclaim. They have angelic revelation to proclaim. And in verse 10, here's who was gathered among the women. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. The other women there, so some unnamed faces, but in verse 10, at least three that are named. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, a mother of James. These names have already appeared earlier. They were at the empty tomb. Um, They were earlier on that Friday at the tomb when when the body was buried, and they proclaim the news to these disciples. I want you to notice not only what the women weren't expecting when they gathered the spices that day, what are the disciples expecting and not expecting? Verse 11 always takes me aback every time I see it. Because it confirms for us the the emotional, mental state of the disciples after the crucifixion of Jesus. The women have come with news of an empty tomb that he's been raised from the dead according to the angels. And in verse 11, these words seem to them, these disciples, to all the rest, the disciples, it seemed to them an idle tale. It seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. That gives us the dichotomy of facing this news of an empty tomb. You will either believe that Jesus Christ has been raised bodily from the dead, or you won't. There is no third option. The resurrection of Jesus happened, or they did not believe them. These words seem to them like an idle tale. And I think what this helps us to realize is that these were not people hoping against hope, reaching for any possibility to explain that, yes, there was a bodily resurrection. They know that when you put a body in the tomb, you're not expecting on the third day that body no longer be there. So they listen to these ladies, and they must have thought, what a cruel joke. We spent years with Jesus. We've listened to him teach. And you're telling us that the stone was rolled away and an angel from heaven proclaims to you he's risen from the dead. We don't believe that. It seemed to them an idle tale. But Peter, and we know from John's gospel, John as well, they're curious enough in verse 12 to see what happened. And Peter, while in verse 11, it tells us they did not believe what the women had said. In verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. There's a lot of running on the first day of the week. People are just not walking around hoping that they'll eventually get there and sightseeing along the way. They're so focused, okay? The women are trying to get to the disciples, and now Peter runs. He rose and ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. That is so intriguing. It is certainly the case that in the ancient world, stones would be rolled over tomb entrances in order to prevent grave robbers from doing their worst, to violate the sanctity of the dead. That any heirlooms and possessions of the dead that were placed in there by family members wouldn't be stolen. But also valuable spices and linens. It is the case that in the ancient world, people had to think about grave robbers. And a stone weighing over a thousand pounds is quite a deterrent. And that is what is going on in Matthew's gospel when a stone is rolled there in Matthew 27. 
So when the women find the stone rolled away, this is not some small, minor boulder that a couple of the women would have been able to push aside. This is a massive stone entrance that would deter robbers and animals from going and violating the tomb. But what Peter finds inside is not what you would expect to find if someone was going to take something valuable. No one is going to unwrap the body and leave the linen cloths. Rather, you would leave the body and take the linen cloths. That's what's valuable. Peter rose and runs to, run, he runs to the tomb. He stoops and looks in and he sees the linen cloths by themselves. What a strange sight. John's gospel tells us, and then to the side of those cloths was the face cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head separately. It was off by itself, nicely folded. Grave robbers aren't spending time folding anything in an empty tomb. The, the, the sheer extraordinary nature of what the disciples come upon demands an explanation. People have tried over the years in history to offer all sorts of different explanations. They've said, well, you know, maybe the disciples just hallucinated uh, the resurrection of Jesus. But of course, we know that hallucinations don't work that way. If an individual is having a hallucination, it's not shared by the group around him. Or rather, he's saying to them, here's what I'm seeing. Do you see what I'm seeing? And of course, they don't. And they're not hallucinating what he is. In fact, we find from the gospel accounts, Jesus encounters the disciples in his risen state, sits with them, eats with them, invites them to touch his limbs. And this is not some apparition. This is not some hallucination. The Roman guards would have no gain to take the body of Jesus. It would ignite a Christian movement, which they would have wanted to stamp out from the beginning, especially one from Jerusalem. If the Romans had the body of Jesus, they would have paraded it immediately in triumph because they were taking such pleasure, along with the Jewish leaders, to kill the crucified king on the cross. The Jewish leaders would never have stolen the body. They demanded the crucifixion of Jesus and the removal of his body would allow the disciples to claim something powerful must have happened. The disciples themselves wouldn't have stolen the body. They fled Gethsemane in Luke 22 as fast as they possibly could. They weren't even found as a group at the cross. They didn't even ask for the body of Jesus like you might think a friend or a family member would for someone who has died. Rather, some we'd never seen before. Joseph of Arimathea has to come to Pilate. If anybody knew that Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead, it would have been the disciples. And you don't die knowing that what you're dying for is a lie. Not these torturous martyrs' deaths that these disciples are going to involve, be involved in. And despite the hostility and persecution that would come upon them as disciples, they, in the book of Acts, are written as bold and courageous and faithful proclaimers that on the third day, the tomb was empty because Jesus rose. Some have said, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he just fainted on the cross. And then they put that body in the tomb. And so they did encounter the living Jesus. It was just after he regained some strength. Well, friends, this, this is an interesting theory until you think some about it. Um, once you start thinking about what the process of flogging and crucifixion involves and how these professional executioners know how to crucify people and that even somebody in a crucified state is not only tremendously weakened, they're not going to appear three days later as if they've triumphed over death. 
I remember in 2015 having microscopic back surgery and I couldn't lift anything over 10 pounds for four weeks. And here Jesus has been crucified. And this idea is one more desperate attempt to try to explain something away from the most plausible and compelling and biblical account that explains the rise of the Christian church in the first century Roman Empire. It wasn't because Jesus merely fainted on the cross and regained consciousness. It wasn't because somebody had taken the body, the Jews or the Romans or the disciples. It was because on the third day, as the angel proclaimed to the women, Jesus rose from the dead. And the disciples proclaimed this news. The risen Christ commissions them, pours his spirit upon them. And they, as the church of Jesus Christ, live and die and proclaim the news of the risen Christ. They remember and keep remembering, just like the women. On the first day of the week, the church of Jesus Christ begins to gather. This is an important shift from the worship of the Jews in the synagogues on the seventh day of the week. We learn in the book of Acts, in the early years of the church, They were gathering on the first day of the week. We see this not only in the book of Acts, but in the letter of Paul known as 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. In the last book of the Old Testament in Revelation 1.10, the gathering on the first day of the week is the gathering on the Lord's day, it's called. Which is where you get that phrase often described as the first day of the week or the gathering of the Christians is on the Lord's day. The reason it's called that and the the explanation of the shift to the first day of the week for the worship of the living God has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. Later rabbis would sometimes refer to the first day of the week as the day of the Nazarenes or the day of the Christians. We are the people of the risen King. And we gather to remember That's what we do. We gather together and we gather each week together that the words of the living God and the truth of the gospel might again flood our minds and hearts together. That despite the onslaught of sufferings and difficulties of the world, our own indwelling sins and pains, our own fears and concerns about life, not only ours but around us, we gather together to remember. And what we are remembering is the message and proclamation of the living Christ in whose name we come. In this sense, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Because the tomb has been empty every day of the week since that one. The stone had never been rolled back because they later discovered a body. Rather, they encounter the living one who holds the keys of death and Hades, as he claims in Revelation. And we, therefore, the people of the risen king. You heard in our scripture reading today... The words, as Daniel shared them with us, from the book of Acts 2. And in Acts 2, Peter's proclaiming to the crowd that Jesus was crucified and that he has been raised from the dead. And they say, what then shall we do? Because the response, and the only proper response to the news of the risen King is to turn from our sins and confess Him as Lord. To follow Him. 
to believe in him, to cast ourselves upon the one who has overcome death. We have been made to know God. You have, been, you have not been made for the trivial things of this world. You have been made to know your maker. You have been made to dwell with him and to be satisfied in him and for your soul to know everlasting joy and life in him. And the ruin effects of sin in this world have to their uttermost done all sorts of corruption and damage and confusion, fracturing us even within in our hearts to where we are bent away from God. We are like sheep gone astray. But God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, the life of the risen Christ, the living one.